Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Sebastian Kaplan, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Hi, Seb. Hello, Glenn. How's it going? It's going very well. So spring is springing, and uh, today we had the opportunity to meet with John Burns, who is the director of SOS Recovery, which is a peer-based recovery community organization in New Hampshire. And that John has offered us some fantastic insights and the podcast could have gone on for hours because there was that many different doors that he opened that we could have followed. But we kept it to just over an hour and a half. That includes again today a role play where you are the client today and John did some work with you. So that's something that people can listen to at the end of the podcast. Uh, we do, we say our goodbyes to John and then the, we have tagged on the, the role play. Like for you, Seb, what was your takeaways from today? Well, yeah, a couple of things really stood out that was interesting. We spent a little bit of time talking about self-disclosure and, you know, that obviously when someone, when someone with lived experience or is in recovery is in a helping role with another person who is, you know, at some level seeking help, uh, there's an understood element that the two people have this shared experience and that's certainly unique to other helping situations where, you know, therapists or doctors or whoever it might be, they don't necessarily, they may have, have no idea from a personal standpoint, what another person is going through. So I, I was curious about how, how, how a peer support specialist uses, or as the case seems to be kind of, doesn't use or sort of underemphasizes that explicit, this is what I've been through kind of experience as a way to be helpful. So John does a, does a lovely job explaining that uh, in terms of the work that he does. And it was also interesting to hear John's, I guess, recommendations or, or impressions on what it's like for a peer support specialist to work in other agencies that are embedded in the community, whether it's a hospital or like a, you know, a law enforcement agency and his ideas about how best to, um, you know, to kind of mobilize peer support specialists and some of the challenges that are, are present in having, you know, like a hospital, for instance, hiring uh, their own peer support personnel. Uh, so those are a couple of things that really stood out for me. How about for you, Glenn? Yeah, they gave him, as you described that, it's recognizing, you know, the episodes we've had where we've looked at IT and uh, AI and helping, it's about recognizing there's, there's this ongoing transition going on within the helping world and peer support is now establishing itself as one of those across the world. And for what was helpful or, or useful today was John beginning by recognizing his own journey of recovery and the, the learning and learning how to support himself 
and then learning to support others. And it, it, it's, it's almost like there was three levels of what we explored. It was, it was the journey he had for himself, the journey he took then to help others. And now where he's at now is that journey, the part of the journey where he's leading others who help. And what we were curious about was where did motivational viewing help at, along that journey for him? And then, as I mentioned, the, the role play, what was wonderful was to, you know, witness John's spirit of acceptance and genuine curiosity of you, the individual who comes into the, the uh, recovery community uh, for a cup of coffee in this instance, and just the way he approached it, the way he endeavored to engage and connect with you. And before he began to explore how and if he or the services that he offered could be of any benefit to you. And as I mentioned, the many doors that were offered from what John was describing, how we could have opened any one of them and and added time to the podcast. It's definitely a very rich experience and uh, I hope everybody enjoys it. Yeah, me too. Okay, let's have a listen. Well, good to see you, John. Thanks for joining us. So we normally start by asking our guests, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, your journey into motivational viewing. Thanks, Glenn. Good morning. Good morning, Sebastian. I appreciate you guys having me. My name is John Burns. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and I also am a family member of, uh, I have a daughter who's in recovery as well. And um, so kind of my journey into MI really came out of that space as I connected into the recovery community. And for me, so for me, my recovery didn't look like a traditional pathway of recovery. It wasn't through formal channels, which a lot of the research is now showing is pretty common, more common even than people who follow specific pathways like a 12-step fellowship. Um, so I wasn't connected to any sort of a recovery community until my daughter in her teen years began struggling with alcohol and later became an injection drug user. And during that time, what I found was there was a lot of the, the levels of stigma and shame were surprisingly high, including in a lot of the circles of friends that I had, which led me to falling upon, I guess would be a good way to describe falling upon a recovery community that was pretty active in the area that I was in, where I was just seeking resources. And we're in New Hampshire, which here in New Hampshire, we have a motto of live free or die. Some of us refer to it as live free and die. It means we have no income tax or sales tax, which also means we have no services. So services are, are bleak and finding resources for a teenage daughter injecting heroin was, was incredibly frustrating, incredibly challenging. Had, had I not connected with some people, I don't know, you know, where that would have led, but. I did fall upon some resources and that motivated me to get more directly connected into recovery. And I was in typical, you know, executive level sales type positions and just didn't, you know, I reached this point where I didn't feel like any of that had a purpose and started volunteering, starting family support groups. And, and that led to the paid position I'm in now which is the director of SOS Recovery Community Organization. And we're a recovery community organization in New Hampshire. We have three, we have four recovery centers now and about 20 employees. Um, we're one of the larger recovery community organizations in New Hampshire. And we provide peer-based recovery supports for individuals with problematic substance use. And that can be people trying to find treatment 
and who may be motivated to seek recovery or they may not be. And it also may be people who have been in recovery for years and they're just looking for some additional support. So it can be everything from one-on-one services to meeting. So that kind of went on for a few years and we do a lot of training on how to become what we now call recovery support specialists. A lot of the industry calls it recovery coaching. We got rid of the name recovery coaching because it's peer-to-peer should have no power differential. And we it dawned on us as we were building a training curriculum. Why do we call this coaches? Because who's ever had a coach that there wasn't some sort of a power differential? Um, so we got rid of that terminology. And now we just call it peer recovery support specialists or peers even. And um, during that time, I fell upon a motivational interviewing training. And it was at, it was at a time couple of years into this that one of the things where I was discovering is a lot of the trainings taught people what recovery coaching or peer recovery supports are. They didn't teach you how to do it. So we had, it was a very trans, it's, it, you know, we still have that training today. There's a recovery coach Academy. There's this art and science of peer assisted recovery that we've built. It's a five day, 30 hour training really brings people into different perspectives around multiple pathways of recovery. But it was very transformational for people to kind of identify some of the issues around stigma and power and privilege, but it didn't really teach you how to do the work. And so what we had was we had a lot of people who wanted to get into the work that would get hired. They got trained in that and they all wanted to save people. Like that was their goal, right? They're very empathetic, have all the compassion in the world but didn't know how to, you know, a lot of them wouldn't know how to work with people in a way that wasn't really unhealthy, which, you know, I think the big aha moment with me was right around the time I took my first motivational interviewing class, which was with a fellow mentee, Stephen Andrew out of Maine. Like I went to that class and I came out of it blown away. It was just a one day, six hour training. And I was blown away. Like, whoa, this could be a game changer for us if we can learn it. And I think it was that very same week I had a participant who was a close family member who had been struggling on and off with substance use. And she came to me and said, she had worked with one of our volunteers who was volunteering, providing services. And she was coming to me, you know, she kind of disappeared for a while, had gotten some, some form of navigation into treatment, had left it, was back in a, kind of a bad place for her. And came to me, I was like, I need to do something different. And so I started to talk to her and she's like, you're not going to like, I just want to make sure you're not going to like try and bribe me with like Burger King, are you? And I, and I was like, what are you talking about? So well, we had a volunteer that was working with her that told her if she went to detox, she'd go take her to Burger King before they went. And I said, I said so you got bribed to go to detox? It was just mind boggling to me that like, again, all good intentions, this volunteer was a wonderful person, really good intentions, but like that was, that wasn't a prevalent situation, but it was a situation that was like, this is happening under my watch in this space where we're supposed to be helping people. And I've got people who want to help them so badly that they're bribing them because they don't understand how people change and how to motivate them to change and how we can support them rather than try to fix them. So the writing reflex was everywhere around me um, with staff, with volunteers. And so that was kind of that first journey. 
And that led to me calling Stephen Andrews saying like, I need to bring this to my organization. And I want like, we had a lot of trainings that we did training with. And I said to him, I want to build a culture where we have more MI proficiency. Like I'm not proficient. Most of our trainings we have, and in my mind, so our, a lot of these trainings that we had done, we had developed some of them. We worked with national experts on curriculum development to develop them. And our training of people was to, if you wanted to be a trainer of our curriculums, you walked through it, you took it. And then we did like a couple hours at the end of each day and maybe had you role play and do some of the modules that you trained. So I figured like, no big deal. Steven can come in, he'll do a couple workshops on MI with some of our staff, and then we'll train everybody to be trainers. It'll be great. And so my first conversation with Steven was, was like, how do, we, how do I build that? And he's like, well, first of all, I'm not doing any of this unless we can do at least three trainings with your staff. So there's going to be an introduction basics. We're going to do some coding. And then we're going to do some advanced practice. And then depending on how things go, we'll select, based, you know, we can look at who's kind of really bought into this. And if they have a really strong desire, we can look at getting into some training of trainers. And I was like, sure. And he was actually, he was kind of blown away. He's like, no one ever gives that answer of sure. And he's like, usually they want me to compact it into six hours and save the day. And he's like, so the fact that you just said that so quickly, let's work on something. So that was kind of where we began. And, you know, and I just fell in love with it. And we did all that with Steven. In fact, I think I took an MI basics class with him four different times before I like co-trained with him. Because it was like, and then there was this realization of like, oh, we can't just send people to like two workshops and expect them to train this. Like, this is a skill that takes a whole lot of practice and a whole lot of training. And it's kind of a journey. That was really what got me into it. And where, 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 you know, kind of led me to ending up going to the mint training of trainer, training of new trainers and getting more involved. But it was a lot of workshops and a lot of coding and a lot of realizations along the way. Oh, wow, what a what a rich story there! Going from the early days and your your personal experiences to this this sort of shift professionally and and you know kind of beginning to I guess understand the landscape at least in New Hampshire of of the the limited services limited resources for people. Uh, your own discovery of of MI from this training with Stephen, and then leading to this kind of broader rollout within your agency and, and, and really kind of exploring how, how you can properly implement motivational interviewing agency wide. And I, I think we'd, we'd be very interested to, to dive into each of those pieces throughout our conversation today. Uh, if it's all right, I'd like to go back to some of those early days and, and, you know, you describe it as, as, you know, there you were as a, as an executive in, in the sales world, and from what I'm hearing, you were kind of struck by perhaps some of your own experiences as an individual, but most significantly, the struggles that your daughter was going through at the time. And I wonder if you could sort of take us back a little bit to that point. And one of the things that Glenn and I were talking about before we, we recorded was, you know, being curious about your own or your daughter's personal experiences with other helpers, again, whether they were those coach people or you know, therapists or, you know, whoever those might've been. And like, what were those, some of those experiences like, and how did those, whether they were 
helpful or unhelpful experiences, how did that start to create a sense for you that, you know, an an understanding, I guess, of what it takes to help people change? Sure. Um, Yeah. And and it's interesting you asked that because I actually called her in the last 24 hours and said, Hey, I just want to check in. We've always kind of had an open book where she was gave me permission to speak about a lot of her experiences, which in the recovery world, you usually try to keep it to your own, not to theirs. And it gets a little bit fickle when you're working between my own experiences as her dad and her experience. And so there's always been this agreement that she was like, okay with it. And she can revoke it at any time. <laughs> so she's still good with me talking about this because you know, one of the things that we've, so, you know, again, I I mentioned there's no, there's very little resources. I think the estimate nationally in the United States is about 10% of people who want recovery are able to access services. So one out of 10 people, if you're, if you're fortunate, there's a lot of barriers. It was even made worse by the fact that she was an adolescent. So if you're under 18, that gets exponentially worse. There is virtually nothing, and that was the big challenge. And what there is in the treatment world in the United States for adolescents is pretty much almost exclusively a 12-step program. Um, So it's 12-step-based treatment facilitators, which works for some people. But the reality is, and and this, you know, and and Tons of people that I work with have followed that 12-step pathway, and it's worked brilliantly for them. So this is not a knock on it, but the reality is 12-step is a directive, is a very directive approach. So you take people through the steps. There's not like, there's no MI of like, hey, would you like to do the first step today or the second step? You know, the, the role of the sponsor is to really bring them through that. And he wasn't in a space where she wanted treatment. And I was in a space where she was a minor. So there was some things I could, I, I thought there was some things I could force. Um, and, you know, and then it was interesting dynamic because I knew my own experience and I had most of my struggles were when I was under the age of 18 too, but I didn't have people try to push me into treatment or anything. I just kind of, I ended up finding it on my own through informal means, but you know, I had forgotten all of that and what it felt like when people were, as I say, shooting on you. And so I was guilty of a lot of that stuff where it was just like, all right, I got to fix her because this can't happen. As a teenager, I lived on the streets in a squat and I was a male. And it's to me like the trauma that's involved with that is so horrible. And then the trauma of a teenage female is exponentially often worse. And so I saw what went on around me, two young females on the streets. And like, that's all I could imagine in my mind was that's where she's going to be. And so how do I stop that? How do I save her from all that? You know, and it took years of learning that what a lot of my approaches was great intentions. They were getting in the way. And if anything, exasperating the situation Likewise, with a lot of the treatment facilities I was sending her to. So, in fact, I was sending her to treatment facilities where she'd be kicked out, and I was researching and researching and researching. And at that time, there was, you know, this was about eight years ago. It was kind of the back end of that whole tough love camps for adolescents. 
And I had a couple treatment providers, again, well-intentioned, that were recommending I send her off to these like wilderness tough love camps. And I'm likewise researching them, finding out that there's like sexual abuse happening in them and people dying and like kids attempting suicide because of it. And I'm like, why would you send, why would you try to tell me to send my daughter there? And there was also a lot of, you know, she had some really good results at times, but there was also a lot of times where she'd have a recurrence. And I, I, I can remember one time she had put together about six months of recovery, had a recurrence and went to her sponsor to explain it to her. And she just came to me an absolute mess because when she had, and, and at this point, she had only had like a, re, a short recurrence and was finding her recovery and was terrified to tell her sponsor and came back to and came back to me just like hyperventilating because when she told her sponsor, her sponsor was like, well, what the hell are you doing? You need to go back to square one. You need to go get your day one ship. And I don't even know if I should be your sponsor anymore. Like, how could you let this happen? And just literally shamed her. Again, I don't look at that as a, you know, as I say, the 12 step fellowship is wonderful and that's not what it's supposed to be. There's some really foolish approaches and some foolish people within 12 step fellowships. And, and that's more about the person, not the, not the approach necessarily, or not the, the, the spirit of a lot of 12 step, but it's, it's common and it's prevalent. And for her, like he was back out on a run within 24 hours of all that, no matter what I could say. So that was kind of a a lot of the barriers that I was witnessing early on and in the position I was in, like, you know, I realized how unhealthy I was getting because I was doing everything from tracking her phone apps to try and figure out where she was and chasing her down and threatening people that were selling drugs to her, like all stuff that I knew having been in that lifestyle, like none of that is going to be effective. It's not even close to rational. And yet here I was doing it and just kind of went to the sick place. And that, and then that brought apart along also a lot of that culture of what we call of what is often called codependency, where like I was being accused of codependency, which was also another transformation to learn. Like, you know, codependency is not like a diagnosis. It really doesn't exist. It's just kind of like uh, it's rooted in that tough love which also doesn't work. So, you know, so since then, like that's brought me to learn things like the craft model, which is an intervention model that doesn't use tough love and is more built around kind of MI approaches. And, and so that's been a big part of like, that's what really drove me. And that was kind of that going through all that training people in sales was no longer really I, I kind of came to this point over a couple of years where I was making really good money and was had always chased that rat race of trying to get ahead. But it kind of, there was a realization like, I want to have more purpose and not see people go through a lot of that challenges of seeking resources that I was going, that I had gone through for years and finding ways to take care of myself so that you don't go into those dark places where, you know, with a family member that you're trying to fix it because it's, you know, and, and then I started, and then when I did, I started seeing that all around me again with people trying to fix others. And so that was a big part of it all. And and 
again, just the depth and the width of what it is you're described is, John, there's so many aspects of what you've just said is, is that, that I'm intrigued to explore with you and chances are I'll not get into all of it with you. But uh, I guess for an awful lot of people listening to you, they will recognize if they have someone that they love who is experiencing or has experienced a difficulty with substance misuse, they will recognize an awful lot of what it, used, what it is you've described taken into account that they made them as you've described yourself you yourself were on the streets you you did some of what it is you were witnessing your daughter do and even though you knew what wasn't helpful for you you found yourself trying to do that with your with your daughter it was yeah. arising from a complaint of compassion and the way you described it with your colleague trying to bribe someone into recovery that you know the the the, the writing reflex arises from a place a beautiful place which is compassion and care for someone else it's just that ability to learn you know caring for someone and them finding you caring are two different things trying to be helpful wanting to be helpful and being helpful are two different things and it sounds like that's part of what you've been discovering on your journey which is how do I love my daughter in a way that will be of benefit to her rather than just me taking control of everything and trying to t- take the pain away or make it better for her. And, and it related in some ways to something that uh, we had David Rosengren on, on the podcast a few years ago, and he talked about the difference between that fluency, which is, you know, you hear something that often and it becomes familiar to you. So you know the what of motivation, you know the what of recovery, you know the what of whatever, but... There's a there's another place which he described as the mastery, which is the the how to, and it's it's that and it sounds like that's again what you've been exploring is how do I do this rather than just talk about it or know it and or recognize the words, and it sounds like that's been an awful lot of the hard work that you've had to put in to get to where you are in your relationship as a dad, as a as a peer support, and as as a, a director of a service as well. So there's. There's a lot of people, it sounds like there's a lot of people that, I'm going to use the word responsible, that you have responsibility for and that you care about. And it's about how to manage and uh, how to be responsibly caring. And I, I suppose I also wanted to reference the fact that you mentioned craft. And for some people that may not be aware of that, I understand that's the community reinforcement and family training approach, which yes. uh, which is, again, another model of supporting people with, with substance-related problems. So with that in mind, and if if I now invite you to tease out what was it that you were that you would find helpful that helped you make that transition from the the writing reflex before you're introduced to motivation to the place now where you're much more containing and uh you're not jumping in just as much as you're in your efforts to be helpful to people. I think the the realization came early on with how I communicate specifically with with my daughter. So learning some different validation and mindfulness skills was kind of the early stages of like, this is game changing. So, you know, approaching her from a, why are you doing this to me and your mom? So, like, she's not doing this to me and her mom. Like, if she could change this, she would in a second. She's not, like, she's facing, she's been through all kinds of trauma. It's horrible. And so she would often come back, she would go to meetings and say things like, I went to this meeting and like, you know, there's all kinds of people gossiping. Or initially I would have this response of like, that's not happening. So I was denying her experience. 
Like, no, no, no. And I was trying to fix it versus like just a simple, that must be so hard to experience that. And, or like even little things like when she would have times where she was doing really well, instead of telling her I was proud of her, saying you must be really proud of yourself. Like that little pivot would was I was seeing these like responses from her that I've never seen before where we were able to have conversations that weren't a fight and that they were actually, you know, closer to that dance that we want to seek out when we're, when we're practicing MI. And so it was not with any MI skills at the time, but learned that a lot of that is the foundational spirit of MI and, and as you start to learn MI, you realize like, oh, okay, now I understand like where a lot of this stuff is coming from. And so those were the, the big game changers, I think, early on. And so this is going to fit well with that, I think, because you, you used some terms in your first, um, well, when you, when you answered uh, my question to invite you to go kind of back in time a bit, and you used the phrase shoulding, which could be misconstrued for, for another similar term or similar sounding term, but you also use the phrase tough love. And, right. and I, these are terms that, that many people will, 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 it'll sound familiar to, but I, I just wonder also for our, you know, non-English speaking countries and listeners in, in those places, they might want to kind of understand better what you mean by that. So if, could you explain what those two things are? And, and actually, if you, in addition to explaining what they are, it'd be great to hear the, the like, am I alternative to to shooting or a tough love approach. Yeah. So I think, you know, the culture, at least here in the United States is especially with kids as they're growing up through adolescence is we tell them what they should do all the time where it's very directive versus sitting down and having conversations about what they might like to do and what, you know, what they might, what their interests might be and what might motivate them. And that approach of like, you need to do this, you should do this, they end up being incredibly counterproductive. As I often say, when I'm teaching MI now, like, to this day, my, for myself, if somebody tells me I should do something, I will often hear them say something that's not a bad idea. But because they told me I should, I'm not going to. Now, I might next week, because I might like, find a way to make it my own idea so that I'm not doing what they told me I should. Um, so that's what we talked about as shooting is that like just constant. And then the tough love piece again is pretty prevalent in, in the U S culturally, which is this belief that like as a parent raising kids, you need to be really strict and you need to have, you know, not healthy boundaries, just a lot of boundaries and, regardless of whether they're necessarily helpful or not. And oftentimes, you know, saying no for the sake of saying no or versus like collaborating and partnering with, you know, like with kids and as you raise them, partnering with them to come up with solutions that are, that they're going to like, that are going to motivate them, that are going to like be something that they want to do that are built in that positive self-empowerment model of like this is this is going to empower a teenager like how do i how do i empower my daughter to work through the trauma that resulted in her substance use disorder like we know there's a lot of trauma 
So how do we work with trauma in a way that builds people up versus almost repeat, oftentimes repeats the trauma of being directed through this, through this tough love approach of like, you know, you just like, and you see this a lot with parenting and a lot with, you know, the whole term of codependency, um, which we know is not a diagnosis. It doesn't exist in the DSM. And it teaches us that like by helping, we have some like addiction to our loved ones to, to help them. And that's not healthy because they need to, you know, people who use drugs and people who use substances need to hit this rock bottom where they bottom out and only then are they going to be willing to get the help that they need. And it's just not true. And, and the, in this current environment of fentanyl and, you know, the drug supply that is what it is, it's that bottom is typically death and like it's the last place we need to be working with people and inflicting upon them and it's very traumatic it's violent as we often talk about in mi like doing some of that approaching our our words can be very violent and a lot of those approaches are are incredibly violent for people you know we know that their trauma prevalence is is, is very heavy i think the science the science says it's well, well over 50%. I often argue like without the science and anecdotally, I see like more like 95% of the people I'm working with have a trauma history and we need to like be mindful of that and create a space where they can be empowered and that they can do it on their terms and not ours. Yeah. You're, you're really endeavoring to manifest caring for people uh, in a way that takes into account your intention, but also takes into account their need. And it sounds like in all of the models that we've talked about before, you know, the intention is always about helping the other person, whether it is this idea of, you know, uh, tough love, that the notion behind it was, if you do this, this will be helpful for your young people or your or your loved one. And it just, that again, it's it's recognizing that the, the idea of what tough love is and the actual manifestation of genuine tough love were very mis, mis, out, of, out of kilter. And it sounds like, again, what you've learned, and and it's, it sounds like it, it was really helpful meeting Stephen and that first MI training, and that began to help you continue in your own pivot. And I wonder if, if we can now look at what it was that you you learned in Motivation Living and how that has grown through years, through your different experiences into your practice, both as a as a as a, a practitioner, but also as a director. So, what is it that specifically about MI that you've noticed that really helps? So, what I've noticed about MI, especially in peer support spaces, is you know one of the advantages we have in a peer support space is that we have you know it's often individuals and family members with lived experience. And that can help, you know, when you're meeting somebody for the first time, having that, knowing that there's that lived experience can create a very quick connection that often doesn't exist. And, and it also is without a power differential. So there's already some components of M, of the spirit of MI that exist naturally and organically within peer recovery support services. What you, you know, what we don't have is, you know, when you look at the clinical area and one of the, I think one of the critiques that peer supports often hear from the clinical support side is the, the lack of formal training for individuals 
working in the, the, you know, often referred to as the Wild West. And in some cases, that's that's earned. So in some cases, there is that. And so what I learned is this is that by teaching people MI, that was the how. That was like the how to deliver services. And if we could build proficiency with my staff, with our staff within the recovery community, like I was realizing that could really change things. And at the time we had a contract with, and we still do, we do peer recovery support services in a hospital setting. So we often get dispatched to an emergency department of a hospital. Now this is where people have typically just come out of an overdose or they're at the lowest level, lowest point in their life. And they're being triaged by this giant team of medical practitioners. And all of a sudden you get dispatched and stroll in as a recovery coach, which they don't even know what that is. And so how do you build, how do you start that conversation and how do you build rapport? And that was where, like, as I, early on with the MI, I would, I was still doing that direct service piece where I'd get dispatched. And I just remember after taking the first training with Steve and walking out of the ED, and I can't tell you how many times where the conversations would just hit those dead spots where I wasn't using reflections and wasn't using some of the skills I learned and wasn't proficient. And I'd walk out and go home and just, analyze the entire oh, if i had just done a reflection there right? like oh i asked too many closed-ended questions if i just asked a few open-ended questions that conversation could have flowed so much better and i might have gotten to you know to even starting to focus but you have a very limited time in that acute type of a setting so to to work through it you're you're on a quick timeline and you know we've since learned that use mi to build that rapport and chances are, if you can reconnect after they leave the hospital, that's the goal. It's not, you're not going to, you're probably not going to solve any ambivalence in that hospital setting other than resolving some ambivalence that they will want to connect with you again. So that was kind of that early learning of, of seeing some of those aha moments of like, this is, this could be really powerful. And then, so from there, we just, you know, as an organization, I started, we started doing trainings. And we started training our staff to do this. And it was typically with a two-day MI basics class. You know, we had kind of built off of what Stephen Andrew had taught us. We had a few people that could train it. It was primarily me and one or two other people. And we were seeing, we were doing that, but I was also finding like there wasn't a lot of, it wasn't sticking for a lot of our staff. So they were learning this, you know, what I often would walk away from those trainings is like, let's just get you to where you understand what the spirit of MI is, because that's a great starting point. And if we can focus on that spirit without trying to save people and focus on the process rather than the, the outcome, we're way ahead of where we were before this training. So we did a lot of that early on. Um, and that just kind of, it's kind of over time, I've continued training. And then I, you know, I finally was but I was doing workshop after workshop with them. And then I was taking workshops and I was doing coding for myself to improve my skills. And then when I did the training of new trainers this last year for for Mint, what I learned was the importance of that coaching and coding and kind of the research that's now showing in six months, if you give one of those workshops, chances are people are back to the baseline they were before the workshop. And so now it became like, oh, no wonder they're not remembering anything. Like the research and science proves that's true. And that like that 
you know, kind of learning from learning from that training that, you know, for the MI practitioners are typically the worst to gauge themselves and their expertise. And that, you know, whether they think they're proficient or whether they think they're horrible, it's probably inaccurate. And so I went and did, you know, after the right at the about the same time as the TNT, I did MICA coding, which is the motivational interviewing competency assessment. And I did that with John Gilbert and Casey Jackson and took that training. And then, and so what I've been doing for like, for about the last four or five months now is add, making sure when we do workshops that we're including some coding and that we're including coaching sessions, at least two coaching sessions with that basics for everybody. And our trainings are not just for our staff, but therefore. You know, typically it's most of the people attending are in New Hampshire and most of them are in the peer recovery world. Mm-hmm. So now we're seeing, you know, my goal right has kind of transformed into this, like, how do I improve my direct service to how do we get this to be a prevalent level of importance within the recovery community and within peer recovery supports so that people are actually learning it and becoming more proficient and trying to implement that. And like with our staff, I do monthly, you know, I've, I've I've implemented like one hour monthly all staff meetings where I where I do a lot of the a lot of the breakouts that we do in our basic MI trainings, even though they've done a lot of them before, just to continuously be practicing it once a month for an hour and combining that with some coding and stuff and feedback and coaching. And quick aside, you use the uh, the word mint there. And just for in case people don't know, many of you will, that's the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, which is this group that uh, John and Glenn and I and uh, many of our previous uh, guests are, are a part of. And uh, it sounds like you've been learning in a way through your own kind of a new kind of lived experience of, of uh, you know, hearing a bit about, you know, how skills can regress after after a while and lo and behold now in your own experience of training and and uh it, it's sort of happened in a way i was curious about something in thinking about peer supports because i'll i'll let you, i'll say uh, i i work in a rather large academic medical center here in north carolina and you know the the world of peer support uh specialists in our institution is relatively relatively new it's it's you know we haven't used them very much in our in our institution. And uh, so, but it's, so it's not something that I personally have had a lot of exposure to or interaction with, but, you know, one of the things that I've wondered about the world of, of a peer support specialist is right from the start, there's something very different than, you know, in, in my role as a psychologist, as a therapist, people are coming to see me without any idea of who I am, what my background is, what my past experiences have been. That's much different in the peer support world. Someone, you know, just by definition, you already know there's a shared lived experience. And and so it made me wonder about the use of the peer support specialists lived experience, like in conversation, you know, and, and the use of self-disclosure would be a, a term that that I, you know, talk about in the training that I do is, you know how to do that in a helpful way when maybe not to do that. And, and I was just wondering, I guess it's somewhat of an MI related question, but in a sense, it's maybe a separate kind of question, right? Or separate topic is how much is that personal experience from the peer support specialist, like used in the conversation to affect change from the, from the client? 
Yeah, um, well, I think sometimes it's often it's used way too often. And so that is not, you know, the spirit of MI really works well with the spirit of peer recovery support services. If if you're if if your spirit is on point, then you'll be on point with it. So what we teach within peer recovery support services, you should share your experience if it benefits the person you're working with. There is absolutely zero reason for me to share any of my experiences as a parent, as an individual of my recovery, of a family member's recovery with one of my participants, if it's not going to help them. Which, again, is that is a hoop and a challenge that we face that, you know, when we're working with a lot of people who are learning peer recovery sports. Because it feels good to talk about yourself and share your experiences. And it can be very, it can really fill your, you know, it, it can be ego driven and, and it can be helpful for yourself to share that. But that's not why we're working with the people that we're working with. We're there to help them. So if you, if you need to share, go do that, but go do that in a, with somebody who you're not working with, with the intent of helping unless, unless it's going to benefit them. And so that's kind of, and so it's much like MI, right? Like in that spirit of MI is it should be self-directed by the participant. And, you know, we're not going to give unsolicited advice. We're not going to provide information that's not helpful to them. And we're not going to do it without permission. So it kind of fits into that mold of all that. So that's really where the, that's where the line is drawn as to where and when and how you should share your experience in that shared loved experience so for i would say the majority of of my conversations with participants which i don't do a ton with anymore there's not much about my experience that i'm sharing and you know i think it's a very small you know and i think in in an ideal world that's typically a small piece but it can be also very powerful you know we'll we have a lot of staff who are parents who are um who have small children and participants coming in and they might be involved with child protective services because of the struggles that they've had with addiction. And so might the people, the, the people that they're working with. And so having that lived experience where it might benefit them to share that, like, yes, I've been through that myself and now I'm reunited with my child. Now you're giving them some hope and that can be, that can be incredibly powerful. Whereas, you know, in the clinical world, like that's, you'd probably get fired for that. You know, you know, I think I think self-disclosure is becoming a little more prevalent in the clinical world, but that's one of those areas where the two kind of part ways is is that self-disclosure piece and that lived experience. Because I I mean I know most of the people that I work with in the clinical side have lived experience, but they don't they just don't it's not something that's part of their repertoire with their services. So Yeah, it's it's quite a, again quite a complex relationship that you're describing yeah. because what strikes me is is recognizing that peer support is, I suppose, it's still very much in its infancy in the treatment services. It's certainly here in Northern Ireland, uh, I've just recently done some work with a, an organization called the Recovery College who use who use peer support uh, in mental health, and, yeah. and you know, just thinking about what's the relationship. Inverted commas, statutory, voluntary, traditional, established helping organizations have with these uh, organizations who now have former patients or former clients as actual practitioners. And, and 
it's it's just how how's that relationship going for you in the world where you know traditionally the peer peer support was something that happened inside the rooms of AA or inside, and now it's a case of it's becoming more professional. It's almost like you're being given, these individuals who've, who've gone through treatment are now being given access to the, the secrets of the, of the tools and the skills that Inverticomas professionals are using. And that difficulty that you're describing, which is, you know, having gone through your own life experience, that it goes, look, this is what I did, and that urgency or desire to be helpful, it can manifest from a peer support individual by going, this is what I did in my journey and this is what I did in my recovery, which from an MI perspective is the right and reflex. And equally, that right and reflex ex- still exists for us individuals who have not got lived experience, but it manifests in a slightly different way, which is, look, you should do this because we read about it or this is what we were taught in college or this is, but again, the desire is identical, just how it shows itself is slightly different. And so it's very important that we don't judge how other people's uh, writing reflexes manifest because it's just a different thing from our own. But we have to keep an eye on our own writing reflex. I'm just, again, just, I'm just curious with you then, John. How is the, the, inverted commas, the professional world of helping respond to the likes of yourselves coming into, into the, into the ballpark and going, we can offer help to the same people that you're helping. I mean, we're seeing that expand pretty quickly. You know, I, I also kind of going off target, off base a little bit here. One of the other things too that we see that's developing in peer recovery supports is sometimes the peer recovery supports are being offered within a clinical setting. So we'll see hospitals hire their own peer recovery supports. We've seen law enforcement do it in some spaces. I tend to be a big advocate of the recovery community organization model, which is community-based and contracting an, an organization to do that versus bring it internal. And people will say, well, why? And I'm like, well, in a hospital, if your management structure and your compliance and all of these structures that are prevalent in the hospital, it's really hard to create a true peer recovery support system for those services because chances are at some level there you're you're under the guidance and supervision of clinical and unless they really understand the nuances and the differences that can be really challenging so same thing in law enforcement like can i really be a peer recovery support service working in law working for a law enforcement agency where like if I'm working with somebody and they disclose to me something around illicit substances, how do you navigate that? Like, do you have to report it? And how do you build that? And honestly, as a person who has used drugs and seen like some of the punitive approaches, am I going to trust a peer that works for a police department? Like never. There's, there's always going to be pause before I disclose stuff. So, you know, we do a lot of contracts under, under like in drug courts and in um, the criminal justice system. And that's always a demand that we place up front with any of the agencies that contract us or that we have grants with is we will provide these services. The only thing we will provide to you is whether the individual is engaged with us or not. And they're like, wait, so if they have a recurrence, you're not going to tell us? I'm like, never. And if that's a requirement, then I'm sorry, we can't, we can't move forward with this relationship because 
the minute we do that, we lose the confidence and the trust and that ability to see change in our, in our participants. And like, I don't have any interest in that. Like then things start to become coerced and, and, and you just take on a whole different role. So we we are seeing a tremendous expansion here in the United States. I mean, in New Hampshire, when I started this, we started SOS in 2016. So we're, we were only the second recovery community organization in the state. And we started with one small center that was all volunteers. There's now 20 recovery centers, and I think it's 16 recovery community organizations just in the tiny state of New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire is a little bit, it's funny, New Hampshire was about 10 years behind the curve and ever having any. Now we're ahead of the curve, and there's not a, many, a lot of states in the United States that have that many recovery community organizations or centers. So there were, you know, it's definitely expanding. Um, so now it's kind of like, how do we professionalize it while keeping it? true to that like grassroots you know and that's the one thing i love about motivational interviewing and i get asked this a lot now that i've gone through you know where i'm training it is people are like well can you really like how is how is the training of motivational interviews viewing to peers and people will ask me like what does your training look like i'm like it would look exactly the same if i was training clinicians as it does peers and most of the research and science we're seeing is you know, is those skills are, can be learned by peers just as well as they can be by clinicians and that there's not like any big delineation of, of, of it not working for peer-based organizations. So that's the one thing I love about MI is I don't, you know, I don't need to send people for their master's in science and social work. I, I can, you know, we can create a structure and a curriculum and a training that will really help expand MI in this in these spaces. John, some really interesting points you made there about, I guess you could say implementation or maybe some of the kind of programmatic realities. Uh, the, the, the point that you made there about, or at least your recommendation that a peer support specialist not work in the hospital setting or in the, in the uh, law enforcement agency to really just enhance, further enhance what that relationship will ultimately be like and, and kind of reduce the risk for what, you know, I think is an, a, a pretty um, expected level of influence that the institution will have on that peer support specialist, whereas, it, in, you know, the goal of the services that you provide are, are to, to be solely focused on the on the client or the participant, it seems like that's the word that you use to, to reference a, a client. And um, yeah, I mean, so that, that's a, that's a really important, I think, take home message. I imagine there's some people out there listening to this who are thinking about their own communities perhaps and thinking about ways to, to uh, create a, a, a network or an organization, or at least to maybe partner with an organization similar to what you described. Um, and so that, that seems to be really um like a really important one. And, and also your last point there of, uh, you know, the, that you don't need to have any fancy degrees to do MI well. And, and, and I, I imagine there's, there's a bit of, uh, I don't know, maybe a territorial nature that, you know, licensed professionals have of, you know, wait a minute, we're going to do the same thing, you know, mm -hmm. but, but I have a PhD and, you know, you don't. So, um, but, uh, you know, it's one of the wonderful things about MI though. One of the things that truly kind of levels the playing field is 
anybody could do this if they have, you know, the heart in the right place and they're, they're listening to, to certain things. So uh, anyway, so just, just saying that I'm really resonating with those two points that you made there. Yeah. And, and, and what you're saying about that, like rub, so to speak, is a hundred percent true. So we're seeing the peer recovery sports come up in sort of, like some of the national organizations I've been to that are that have traditionally always been clinical have started bringing in certifications around peer recovery supports. And they've started, you know, their annual conferences, they're bringing in tracks that are peer recovery based and recovery support based. And then in some of the larger conversations that I've been in in those, like there's some angst where they're like, people are just like, wait a minute, like, who do you guys think you are? coming in here like i've been to school for six years and now you're gonna stroll in here and tell me you can do basically the same thing and my response to that is absolutely not the same thing you know in fact one of the big pieces that we train in recovery supports we have a lot of trauma i don't want my staff i don't want recovery support specialists delving into the trauma of our individuals we can, they can share about it and we can make recommendations that they go see somebody with the skills and the experience to delve into that trauma. Do not go into the trauma because you are going to have a crisis on your hands more than likely and you might cause more trauma than you've helped. Mm. So those are some areas where that's why I think they complement each other. Mm. And I think, and I think there's some concern that is, absolutely true that i'm that i hear from clinicians of this like sense of this like well there's so many peer recovery sport like there's not enough training going on and there's not enough like professionalism and it's true like that's a real concern and it's a real issue and that's you know which is why i'm so passionate about the mi piece of this because this is a way that we can really change that landscape and see some really effective peer supports that are not like going off the rails, doing things that are not going to be helpful to participants and finding ways that the clinical world and the peer world can complement each other where we're sending people to clinicians and they're sending people to us. And now people are getting two different forms of support that they never had before that are very, that are, have some similarities, but have a lot of differences that can really be impactful in how they improve their lives and their wellness. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing a community of care that includes people who have lived experience, people who have gone to college for six years and everything else in between with the shared goal of what can we do across this spectrum that can be of benefit to individuals who need help. And what we're going to do is we're going to keep in touch with each other and use the expertise each party has for the benefit of, of these individuals and families who need support to change because that's what we all want to do, help. And with that in mind then, John, I'm curious about with this journey of motivation to be now that you are the director of uh, SOAS, which is, if I'm right, stigma over, strength over stigma, the SOS for your organization. And it's just, I'm just, how do you use MA in your role of leading people who help people? Yeah, and so the SOS is a interesting sidetrack. So SOS was an acronym that we developed without any meaning. Right. And then we tried to create like what SOS stood for. Right. We never actually have. Right. 
uh, we tried and nothing, nothing ever fit. And, and so it's always just been like SOS is kind of that universal sign of save our souls, saving people yeah. or like not saving people, but, um, it's kind of a distress signal, right? Mm. And so for people in distress, so how can we help them? And it's interesting. We just did, we did a, we did a campaign around stigma call and we labeled it strength over stigma. Mm. And so we had like, now we've had like media do some stories about some of our services and, and they'll, they're putting in their SOS strength over stigma as if that's what SOS right. is. Right. So it's funny you said that. But um, so I think, you know, when I look at how we're building out the, this kind of this motivational interviewing, it's really about making it cult like a cultural norm. Like when I look at how, you know, it's building it not just for SOS, but for the other recovery support organizations across the state with the trainings that we're doing and trying to, you know, and, and we have a lot of data around our support services. So trying to use that data to show as we improve our motivational interviewing skills as an organization, how is that going to shift the outcomes that we're seeing, which are, you know, tend not to be there more around what we call recovery capital, which is your internal and your external resources to find and maintain recovery. So connection and, and a lot of that stuff, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the recovery based data points are really should be focused on connection more than anything versus, and unfortunately we often get pigeonholed into wanting people wanting data about treatment outcomes and it's like well we're not treatment so those outcomes are meaningless so why why are you making us report on that but we want to do data it just needs to be built around that connection piece and like how are we improving people's recovery capital and i'm hoping as we continue to do this mi that we'll see you know for our organization that data demonstrate that the mi is showing outcomes that are improved over other recovery community organizations to help kind of justify and, and demonstrate the importance of this. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm, that's been my, that's, you know, the, my passion is really focused around how do we, how do we train my, like, ideally I'd like to see two or three of my staff become members of, of the motivational interviewing network of trainers. Like, I think that's kind of a goal so that it's not, you know, this isn't about me. This is about like, how can we really make MI a, a cultural norm within recovery community organizations and within, and not just recovery community organizations, because our organization is very harm reduction based. We do a lot of homeless outreach and there's a lot of peer to peer supports in the harm reduction world. So we also serve as a syringe service pro provider. So we provide safer um, safer injections supplies and syringes. We supply safer smoking supplies. We supply safer sex supplies at all of our recovery centers. And that's, that is a population that is marginalized. Many of them are homeless, not all. And so how can we also bring MI into those spaces too, because it's so powerful there and make it kind of a cultural thing in peer services period, not just peer recovery support services. Although I think there, there's a, there's kind of like, to me, harm reduction is a form of recovery. So I uh, like, 
I have a hard time separating the two, although there's many in the harm reduction world that will tell you they're very different and many in the recovery world that will tell you they're very, like, to me, they're the same. Um, but that's, there's another podcast about that. So it's, it's really kind of nice to hear where you're at now as, as like the, the current, um, some of the current details of your, of this whole journey for you, John, and, and the way that you're, you're taking a data driven approach to examining how effective your trainings are and, and, and really kind of asking yourselves the questions, even at a more fundamental level is, you know, what are the right data points to evaluate a peer support model as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a substance abuse treatment program that have maybe some other areas of focus. Um, and then even hearing how you're, you're kind of expanding into other realms like the, like the harm reduction uh, in the harm reduction world is, is really quite interesting. So at this point, John, we'd like to transition to one of our final questions that we ask all our guests is if there's anything coming up for you in the not too distant future that you have your sights set on that uh, it's interesting to you, whether it's something that's professional, MI related, or perhaps not MI related at all. Yeah, I think there's a number of, so there's a number of more on the professional side, although I, I have a hard time separating the professional from the personal with this work, but you know, a few of the things, the the first one is that harm reduction piece. Like that's for our organization, it's kind of a, we've had always had a more harm reduction approach, but we've gotten more into the weeds with that, with the syringe services and some of the safer supplies that we're now doing and looking to really expand that and make that something that's a bigger part and that one, when I look at that, including training of peers and that and volunteers in that, like, I would really like to see, you know, there's a, in harm reduction we, and in recovery sports, we often have this saying of nothing about us without us. And what do I know about somebody who's injecting drugs today and their needs? So how do we bring people who, who are still using drugs or people who do use drugs and, and it's not problematic because that's the majority of people out there is about 90% who use drugs don't, it's not a problem, but it's, it's demonized. So how do we bring people like that to inform our services and build our services into the fold, like teaching them MI, teaching them to work alongside with us and more importantly, them teaching us because I often say the biggest barrier in the space of addiction and mental health, you know, somebody was just asking me this at a, at a session I was at, is they said, what's the biggest barrier? I'm like, the biggest barrier is we have providers in both the recovery services and in treatment that build our services around what's convenient for us and not what's convenient for those who they serve. And, and by nature, it creates barriers mm. that make those services inaccessible. So, how do I get more of that grassroots involvement from our participants in both harm reduction and recovery supports so that we're truly like living that spirit of MI with all of them and that they're the ones that are driving our, our services and not us. Like, it's not about me. I shouldn't be driving what's what the program is. I often refer to myself as the maintenance guy. So with that, we're also looking at um, building some social enterprise because workforce development is a big issue in the recovery spaces, sometimes entry-level positions. So we're looking at right now trying to build a social enterprise model where we will bring people in to be employed in this social enterprise model. And like one of the areas we're exploring is possibly a restaurant. Have it be much more meaningful than just a restaurant where 
in the back of the house where they're working in the kitchen, we're connecting them to culinary arts programs, formal education, so that they can move on into like an executive chef position and not just come in and hire a prep cook who's going to be there for the next four years as a prep cook. Nothing wrong with that, but I often say, you know, people in the recovery world, like they're not, their basic needs are barely being met oftentimes. And then three or four years, they're on this hamster wheel that they can't get off of because there's nothing beyond that. So how do we build that upward mobility for them to actually have had purpose and meaning mm. beyond their recovery? And then same thing at the front of the house, tying them into more hospitality management maybe. And so they can move on to maybe manage hospitality or do some, do whatever they wish with that. So that's one area. And then the other one is like recovery housing. There's a huge housing shortage here in New Hampshire. So how do we build housing? And like recovery housing is for typically peer-based for people after they leave treatment. So I'd really like to, as an organization, we're really delving into how can we have that as an arm of our organization and with the harm reduction, I'm also kind of simultaneously looking at that in more housing first models, which have no, so the housing first model is one where people come into housing with no expectation that they're going to stop using drugs or substances. It's about, it's this belief that if you give them, if people's basic needs are met, the, their, their wellness improves, which we know is true. So let's stop creating these ridiculous rules where like you have to stop using drugs if you want housing. Well, part of the reason they're using drugs is because they don't have housing. Like, so we're going to traumatize them more as a requirement to get housing. Like, so I, I really have a passion as an organization that we build something um, around that, we, that evidence-based approach of like, let's just give them the housing and let's not put all kinds of silly rules on it. We know what'll happen and we can provide supports and services while they're housed, which are going to be way more effective than the services and supports we're giving them while they're living in tents or while they're unstable in an unstable housing situation, which is so prevalent in our, in our communities. So mm. they're kind of the big areas that we're focused on is, is around those areas. Mm. So many ways you're describing and, and, in global terms, it's almost like the understanding the resistance of people that from an MI perspective in the early, in the early books, Steve and Bill talked about resistance as a form of communication from coming from the service user, the client's end, like what you're doing is not helping, that resistance is a practitioner's issue, that when, when people aren't using our services, we have to look at our services rather than the people. And to use that famous uh, movie quote, it's, it's not really true, build it and they will come. It's a case of, you know, find out what they want and then let's build it with them and that will be helpful. And it sounds like that's what you're working really hard at and and, try, and, and as much as anything else, you're changing the culture of the caring community but also the wider community about how do we approach and support uh, fellow citizens who happen to have difficulties with drugs and alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And, and here in the United States, what we often hear is when the services are failing, the individuals we hear they didn't want it bad enough. Yeah. And and it's just not true. Sure. The reality is the services weren't appropriate for them. We can build the services that they can access and that are appropriate. Mm. And the problem is us, not them. Yeah. Like we're the problem. Like, how do we like, you know, when when something when I when I don't see outcomes coming out the way that 
I would expect with our organization, that's my problem. Like mm. that's that's our organization's problem. We need to change something because there's something we're doing that's wrong. Because people will naturally move towards wellness when you provide the correct, the proper services and supports. Much like change, they're going to change if you give them that empowerment. And so I think I think that's one of the areas that we really struggle in this service provider environment is there's, and I think a lot of that comes from the war on drugs and kind of a long-term punitive approach to people who use drugs and, and substances and this demonization of them that like, well, you know, they're the problem and it's not, the, you know, as I say, we don't have a drug problem. We have a drug policy problem. It's uh, in- interesting. You're saying this, John, I, I, as an aside, I, um, I'm doing a presentation next week and I um, assigned everyone to read Bill Miller's first paper way back in 1983 when he, when he first wrote about motivational interviewing. And the, the very first part of that paper is this discussion that we're having right now about, you know, the, the, the tendency to believe that if the client or the participant doesn't improve, that's on them. But if it does, wow, we you know, we have a great program here and it's just, just really kind of, wow. I just literally, as I was rereading that paper, just, just, um, you know, sounding so familiar here 40 years later, but anyway, John, um, so, uh, I, I certainly hope and would imagine there'll be people really interested to, to ask you some questions and to learn a little bit more about what you're doing there. So if, uh, would you be open to people contacting you? And if so, how can they reach you? Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to contact me is probably via email. Um, and they can do that by emailing me at, it's pretty simple, John, J-O-H-N, at S-O-S-R-C-O, as in Recovery Community Organization, dot org. So it's S-O- John at S-O-S-R-C-O.org. And they're also wel- welcome to go to our website, which is www.sosrco.org. And there's you can contact, connect to, to us there as well, and it'll get to me. In fact, most will actually go to my email. So that's also a great place to connect, and I'll get it. Fantastic. And just to remind people for ways of staying in touch with ourselves, myself and Seb, on Twitter, the podcast handle is at Talking. For us individually, it's SGK from NC for Seb and at Glenn Hines for myself. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook is Talking to Change. An email for comments or questions or ideas or ideas about or uh, information on training. It's podcast at glennhines.com. All right. Wonderful, John. So we, we really appreciate you joining us. And, and for those listeners, uh, we're, we're now going to record uh, a role play that uh, hopefully we can kind of tack on to the end of this uh, episode. So you can, um, so you can listen to us, have the conversation. And then as you keep listening, you'll listen to our role play, but we'll close off the interview part. And, uh, and again, express gratitude to you, John, for, for agreeing to, to join and, and share some of your world with us. And thanks so much for having me and, and giving me the opportunity to do this. Very, very helpful. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so as Seb mentioned, we're going to now have an opportunity to listen to John offer a role play with Seb uh, as a, an injecting drug user. Over to you, Chaps. Okay. Good morning, Sebastian. So I understand we've, I've seen you coming around, and one of my other staff members mem- mentioned you wanted to kind of sit down and, and talk about some things that you were having some struggles with. 
And so I just wanted to take a few minutes here and have a conversation and find out kind of what you're looking for and how we might be able to help you out. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm not wanting to, you know, sign up for anything at this point, but I, I, you know, I've come in here a few times. You guys seem pretty cool. And, you know, honestly, I, I really just came in because it's freezing outside and I just wanted to have some coffee and, and warm up. But, um, you know, I, I've heard a couple people talk about, you know, treatment or recovery or this sort of stuff. And maybe I thought I'd, I'd just see what, what you guys had to offer. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's a big step for anybody. I think to even talk about that can be difficult. Um, would you mind telling me a little bit about what your kind of drug use is looking like and, and why you feel like it might be a problem that you would want to, you know, kind of explore these things. Well, I, I suppose, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty regular, uh, heroin addict at this point. Uh, I'm using, you know, I, I, I couldn't tell you how often I, as, as, as much as I can get my hands on it, I'll, I'll, I'll use and, uh, try to get high and, um, you know, it certainly didn't start with that. Uh, you know, I, and I never thought I would get to this point in my life, certainly. And, you know, I was a teenager like anybody else drinking and smoking some weed and, you know, then gosh, I don't know, a few years later, I'm living on the streets, you know, doing everything I could stealing stuff and breaking into houses and things like that to try to get enough money to, to, you know, to get high again. And, um, so that's, 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 you know, just to answer your question, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Um, um, you know, I'm using pretty often. Exhausting and, and, and cold out. So the combination of those, I, I would guess are, are challenging for you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I would say my life is a lot easier in the summertime, but you know, as you know, it's, it is pretty cold, uh, and pretty hard. I, I don't have, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of bouncing around different places and I'm staying in a tent. Sometimes it's every now and then the shelter will let me in, but that's not always that consistent. They may not have room. You know, they got all these rules too that, you know, I'm not too fond of. So, um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to, uh, to stay warm. It's hard to eat. And, you know, really there's times where the most important thing for me is just to get high. And the supports aren't there. And, feeling kind of alone in all of it. Yeah. I w- alone for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of have a girlfriend, I guess, who's also kind of in a similar position, but you know, I, I don't know. That's, that's pretty unstable. And we fight all the time about, you know, things we're doing. And so, yeah, it does, it does feel like I'm out there on my own. My, my family, you know, they don't want anything to do with me. Not, not that I blame them, but I mean, I, I mean, maybe they could be a little bit more supportive. I mean, they actually have a house and some money, but so they couldn't, you know, why can't they offer that to me a little bit? But, you know, I get it too. I, you know, I've burned those bridges. And reconnecting with them though would be an important piece and maybe building some stability. I, I guess, I, you know, I, I mean, last time I talked to any of my family was about six months ago and, 
they made it pretty clear. They don't want anything to do with me. And, uh, you know, that was pretty hard. Again, I don't blame them. So reconnection, if they're willing, I, uh, I, I guess it's hard to imagine that they would be, but yeah. Well, on one hand, you're feeling abandoned by your family. And on the other, there's this, there's a desire there that to bring some stability into your life and reconnect with family at some level, if, if they'd be open to it. Yeah, I guess you could say that. I mean, it's, you know, if we do reconnect and I mean, there's going to be a lot of soul searching that we'll have to do and, you know, a lot of wounds that need to be healed. But, uh, if that's, if that's at all, I've kind of given up on it, to be honest, you know, you bringing it up now makes me think a little bit more about it. So if it is possible, I, I guess I'm still open to it. What do you think would be some of the steps that might help you to get to that point? Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's hard to really see into the future very much, to be honest with you. I mean, that, I, I mean, you know, I woke up in my tent this morning, freezing my ass off and, and thought I, I, I gotta, I'm going to go check those guys out at the recovery center so I can at least get some coffee and warm up. And, you know, and I, and at that point I had kind of thought to myself, you know, maybe I should ask to talk to somebody, but honestly, I, I don't really know what's, what these steps are. What's the next, I mean, I've had people, you know, I've had people talk to me before and I've had people try to help and, you know, a sponsor once, you know, try to, you know, convince me with all this fancy talk or, you know, I got locked up in a place before in some rehab place and, you know, they didn't, they didn't give a shit about me. They just, you know, they were just trying to get paid and, you know, there to, to yell at me, it felt like. And, uh, so I don't know. I don't really know what this is all about. I just, again, I, like I said, I came in here to warm up and, and I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll see what you guys have to offer. Right. So, and then that's understandable. I mean, I think for most people, you, you know, in active addiction, like yourself, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's kind of a daily like battle just to keep from getting sick and, and going through that can be really challenging. So perhaps finding some support for that might be helpful that just, just to get a little bit of relief from it all. I mean, relief would be nice. I mean, you know, it, it's, it is kind of, sad to to sort of think back and you hear you heard people all the time talk about things in high school and you know later on about what addiction is like and you see these movies and the man uh you know to be in it is uh it's really rough right and and at some level you'd like to not be in it anymore you know uh, yeah um I mean, not knowing what that looks like, but if there is a way out of this and if you guys can help, and like I said, a couple other people I've hung around with and, and, you know, and used with, they're not using anymore. And I mean, you know, they seem like they're okay, you know, and, and, you know, I saw one of the guys the other day and talked to me about it. And so if there's a way out, I'll, I'll, I'll listen. I, I can't say that I'm signing up for anything right now, but I'll listen. Sure. Sure. So perhaps, you know, there's an opportunity if, if we were able to, if I was able to share some different resources that have worked for others that you'd be willing to explore 
and we could talk through some of those and see if they might be a fit for you. Sure. If, if you have some resources in mind that you think could help me, I, I, I'll, I'm all ears. I'll listen. Okay, great. Well, that's a big step. And, you know, certainly it's a scary space to be in to, to kind of look at like taking those steps. So I commend you on just coming in here today and really looking at some of these options. Those, those can be big steps. And a lot of times they can be challenging steps and that, you know, they're not always a fit. So finding a way that that fits into where you're at currently can, can be the, the primary focus that we can kind of put so that it feels safe for you. Hmm. Um, tell me a little bit of like how you might envision those next steps for you. Well, I mean, I guess I'm wondering what, what other people do, I, you know, cause my experience, I got, you know, I'd get locked up or sent to some rehab place and locked into it. And, um, I, I just don't know if there's, I'm, I may, maybe that's the next step that, that you're going to suggest that. Cause I don't know what else is out there. I mean, so far you seem pretty cool and, you know, but I have to say, I, you know, if it's, a, if it's another locked place, I, I can't do that again. I'm not going. Right. So being in like, so there's residential settings that provide treatment supports that aren't necessarily locked down. You can leave anytime you'd like. Um, if it's okay, I can share some of those resources with you. They don't require you stay there. They, you know, it's, it's completely voluntary, so they're not going to lock you down. Um, but it is, a, it is a residential type setting where you live there. That's, those are, that's one option. And then there's some other options such as outpatient programs um, where you might go to like an intensive outpatient program three or four times a, a week. And, you know, one area that we've seen a lot of success with is people connecting to medication for opioids, um, which is a medication that's going to help with the getting sick and it's going to help you um, maintain your recovery without, you know, with, with less, with less cravings. And, and that's also been an effective. So there's, there's kind of some multiple options there that, that we could explore with you. Okay. So, so I don't have to get locked into a, uh, so, okay. Right off the bat, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more open to it from what you're saying. I'd heard people taking medications and things, but I, you know, honestly, I, Doctors have done nothing but piss me off, honestly, any anytime I've seen them. And they just lecture me about, you know, don't use drugs and don't you know how terrible your life's going to be. And, you know, I, I don't need anybody telling me that. So, you know, if, if you think there's a doctor out there that can help, I'm at, like I said, I'm, I guess I'm open to it. But, you know, I, I think, you know, the thing that I'm most nervous about is people are going to make me stop using. and. I guess I, I don't know. I don't know that I'm ready to stop right now today. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I was kind of expecting you to lecture me about how I have to stop using. You haven't done that yet. So I, I, I'm, I'm a little, I don't know. I don't know what to expect now, but this is kind of surprising. Yeah. I mean, so, and that's like, I don't think there's any requirement that you stop using. I think if, if you want to continue using, then that's, that's an option that's available to you. You know, we're not going to, most of the treatment programs would ask that you not. So that wouldn't necessarily be a trip, but one of some of the things we could explore is if, 
would just be, you know, whether you're using sterile syringes and safe supplies and, and you're welcome to explore that with us. Cause I, you know, I don't know what you're using right now for like, are you sharing syringes or, or you know, kind of what does that look like? You know, again, yeah, you know, I've heard, I, I, you know, I know the, the deal about you're not supposed to share, but you know, if, if I have to share so I don't get sick, I'm going to share. And right. have I shared before? Of course. Right. So, you know. Okay. So on one hand for you, there's kind of this desire to change the way things, the way you're living um, and, and perhaps seek treatment. But on the other side, like you're battling with this, like, do I even want to stop using? And so maybe there's some opportunities that, involves, you know, some, at least some safer supplies so that we keep you a little healthier and, and maybe that's maybe down the road, we explore treatment. So hold on. So you're saying that you're just going to give me some needles? Yeah, we absolutely. So, I mean, our goal is to keep you safe. And so, you know, working through some things like, you know, I want to make sure you don't overdose. So we can provide you with naloxone, which is an overdose reversal, and teach you about some safer injection approaches so you don't get infections, you don't end up in the hospital, and provide you with syringes so you don't end up, you know, sharing can can be problematic in terms of HIV and hepatitis. And we can provide you with some different strategies like that and some safe sterile supplies so that at least you feel safer, you know, when you do when you're using. And and then we can kind of go from there. Wow. Um, I don't know. This is, uh, this is a bit scary, even though it sounds like there's a lot of options I didn't know were available to me. It's, you know, um, John, I think I'm going to, I think I need to step out uh, and just think about this. I'm, I might go out and have a cigarette and just, just like think about some of the stuff that you've been telling me and um, what do I just come back in and just ask for you or like, how, how, you know, how do I do yeah. that? Absolutely. I mean, we're, you know, we're here all day. So you're welcome to just come and go. Like there's no requirement that you stay here. If you want, we can go outside with you or you can come back in when you're ready and give, give this some time to process. These are all big steps and it's, brave of you to be considering them. So you're welcome to take that time. All right. Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm going to step out and think about it. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to say I'll, I'll see you in a few minutes, but I, I can't promise anything, but I'm going to step out for, for now. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks chaps. Brilliant. So, Let's just think about what, what just happened, and I'm, and I'm particularly thinking about from the audience perspective. I, I, I guess one of the things I want to do then, first of all, is maybe if we if we start with yourself, Seb, as the as the user who's come in, what was it like for you? What happened, and what did you experience? I, I guess the the main thing I'm I was trying to really tap into is someone who is lived and is living a really hard life and has been rejected, mistreated, judged time and time again. 
and just thinking about the courage that it takes for uh, for someone like that to to even come in the doors and get some coffee at a place that you know has recovery sort of prominently featured in in the in the on the building or on the signage or whatever it is and and even kind of knowing that that's sort of implied as part of what the goal is that um that it takes some courage to do that and and how you know that and as and to also think like you know who wouldn't want that you're in new hampshire in the winter time it's cold as hell and, you know but still it 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 takes courage to get to that point to to walk in the door and then mm-hmm. to even ask hey can i talk to somebody so I, that's to, and and so with that having john respond to me in that way of of you know there was there's was nothing he didn't say anything he didn't say i had to do anything he didn't say i should do anything um it just seemed like someone if i was if i had to muster all the courage in me to go talk to somebody at all that john's somebody who i'd want i'd be willing to have another conversation with him mm. Mm. so even even in saying it's interesting to, to appreciate that going somewhere to get something that you want in this instance a cup of coffee the challenge is that you as an individual have to overcome because of your own assumptions of what maybe exists within this building and that what John did was allow that space and not to push you towards being anything in, in particular and I guess as the observer as you were saying it it struck me that John you, you spent an awful lot of time endeavouring to understand how things were for Seb and why they were like this and it was only when you had that understanding that you begin to explore what else or how else or what might be different. And so can we just explore with you what it, what was happening for you in that conversation and what were the choice points that you were aware of and, and the choices that you made? So I think coming from my perspective is like that realization that most people who walk into these spaces to even have this conversation is a big deal. And even to walk in at all, like even when they don't ask for help, like, cause, cause of that very reason, the fact that we are a recovery community organization, there is an implied piece for a lot of them that we're going to try and talk them into recovery. Mm-hmm. So it's not unusual for people to be surprised that we don't. And it's not unusual. We do a lot of outreach as well to go to into encampments and things like that. And they're often surprised, like, oh, you guys aren't going to try and talk, like, like, no, we're just trying to help you. Mm. And whatever that looks like, I don't care. It doesn't need to require. So I think in, you know, experiencing this, really trying to understand where the barriers are and where he's, where an individual is at, mm. like, to build that rapport and be able to empathize with that. Like, that's, you've got to make that connection because if you don't, like, the experience of most of the people coming in is they're again, they've been told over and over what they need to do and what they should do and how they should do it and when they should do it. And there's like this urgency of getting them into some sort of treatment when that's not, that's very rarely realistic out of the gates. Mm. So if you don't learn to understand what their needs are and kind of as Stephen Andrew often taught me, like don't meet people where they're at, meet people where they dream. So finding out where that dream is, is it reconnecting with his family? Is it reconnecting? Um, Is it just finding housing? You know, like where are they dreaming beyond like that daily grind of just trying to have their 
basic survival needs met. Mm. And like, and how do you look beyond that when your day-to-day grind is just survival? So mm. you really have to like, it, it can, t- you know, I remember when I first started before MI coming into this, these spaces, I used to ask people what their goals were and they looked at me like I had three heads and I realized like, okay, you're on step four or five. Like there's about four steps before that, before you can have that conversation. Cause you know, as soon as I'd say, what are your goals? Like, I don't freaking know. And mm. you know, you might as well have lit their hair on fire and mm. sent them running out of the recovery center to ask that question. Yeah, and, and, and from what you're describing there, if we go back to the way you were describing how you were at that early stage, particularly with, in your relationship with trying to support your daughter, which was coming up with ways forward, you're saying that in this conversation, that wasn't your goal. Your goal was just to say, hey, how are you? And let's find out why things are the way they're at without judgment. And then I love that idea of, you know, what is what is this person's dreams and can I meet them there? And, and understand what that dream is and what Seb's was. And, and from your perspective then, Seb, you know, in that conversation, I guess from the way you describe yourself coming in, which I'm having for a cup of coffee, at the end of it, 15 months later, you're, you've gone out for a smoke and you're, you're contemplating. What, what, what was changing for you during that conversation? What was happening within you that, that got you to the point where you were actually considering coming back and after a smoke to look at needle exchange or something different? Well, one thing that was... Uh, a surprise to me actually even in role was the emphasis on family that you uh you came back to a few times john and uh and and so that there was that piece which which was um you know significant but i think an observation just in general was that you you know, you're, you didn't ask for goals. You did ask me about next steps and you were curious about that. You were curious about kind of where things might go with family, but it was done in a way that was really like just, just sort of gently exploring it just to see what, what's out there for, for me. But you were also very willing for me to not know. And for me to kind of be like, I don't know, man, I just got here. I just came in for a cup of coffee. I, I, I don't even know what I'm doing in 15 minutes let alone what the next steps and recovery are, but, but it's still, but it's like the, the question itself is important. And of course, with the foundation of the MI spirit, where you were very accepting that I didn't know, and you were very accepting that I may not want to stop using right now. Um, and you had resources for me to, to use in safer ways. So it, I could imagine for somebody who was walking in already really kind of um, nervous and, and, you know, on edge about it and with those past experiences feeling at least like, Ooh, that was, that went better than I thought it would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I think, I mean, one of the things I observed too is, which is pretty common we see is people come in the door looking for quote unquote treatment. And one of the challenges we often have with our staff and peer recovery support services is like getting rid of the bias that treatment is the goal. And so oftentimes they will come in and it's kind of like that. We know ambivalence isn't like MI isn't a linear process. And so you came in with kind of this recognition that maybe you wanted some treatment. Maybe that was something that you'd consider. And then it moved to, well, I'm not ready to stop using drugs. I don't think I'm ready for that. Almost 
which I, so I think for a lot of people, they're going to step back and say like, Oh, we just went backwards, Mm. which, you know, so removing that bias and understanding that like, you can't like, it's not for me to set the goal. And if using safely is becomes the goal, like it's that focusing too early, like you can't just focus, you know, if I had gone right into focusing on treatment, we're in trouble. Mm. And, you know, so, you know, and there's even like, uh, you know, and even like the thought of you leaving to go outside to smoke and not coming back, that is a, terrifying fear of, of a lot of the staff. Like they're having these sessions and now all of a sudden he wants to go outside and smoke. Cause 99% of the times it means you're not going to resolve anything today. Mm. And you have to accept that and realize that's part of the process. Mm. My goal is like, and if I'm like, no, 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 you can't go outside. <laughs> Let, let's talk some more. You're never coming. You're still going outside to smoke and now you're never coming back. Mm. So giving you that space and also offering like, the partnership of like, I'll go outside with you too, mm. or we can have somebody go out with you if you want, you know, those, the, they kind of give some options. And I think those are also really important in these spaces that a lot of people don't realize is they'll really like, that's where the writing reflex starts to come in is like, and it's a real fear that you might overdose tonight and not come back. Mm. Mm. And that's the, that's where the writing reflex comes on strong. Cause like, Oh, so close. He mentioned treatment and now he's leaving. Mm. So this is not a sales uh, scenario where you want the, the, the signature at the end of the conversation. For you, the goal is the relationship development and wherever that happens to be at the end of the conversation is is the pl- place to be aware of. Are they coming back? If they do, fantastic. If they're not coming back today, there's the opportunity that whatever happened in those last 15 minutes increases the likelihood that he'll come back and perhaps for another cup of coffee that he's yeah. had, a, that he's had a positive helping experience and the absence and, and positive being the absence of judgment, the absence of pressure, the absence of expectation. And just to, and, and as I guess in Seb's instance there, just to learn a bit more about what actually happens inside this building for his own consideration and how did that then fits in with the experiences of other people he knows who've gone through a recovery journey and he's gone away now to potentially contemplate how does he put those jigsaw pieces together for himself and are you one of the people he might include in that journey um, yeah. given given the way you treated him for the first 15 minutes of that encounter? Sure, yeah. I mean, some of the most rewarding moments to me are those pieces where somebody walks in our doors and comments on the fact that they're looking for help and that they came here six months ago and we were the only space that didn't like try to force them to do something and that didn't like judge them and that they felt safe. And like just them coming back and saying that regardless of where that conversation, like those are the, those are the big rewards of knowing that like, okay, we held that spirit of MI, we held that spirit of, of letting people choose where their pathway what what their pathway and where their pathway leads on their own without us really trying to like change that or trying to fix it or trying to save them and like just doing it without judgment and providing them some safety for a minute because for a lot of the people that we're working with having a safe space for five minutes is like gold for them like that it doesn't happen often they're they're in spaces where it's never safe Mm. so that can be a huge um huge piece for for a lot of the individuals we serve sure 
quite a rich insight to finish today with, which is just that invitation for us as helping practitioners to realise that, you know, just just having a safe space in itself mm-hmm. can be really beneficial and quite different for people coming into treatment services. John, thank you very much for for that role play and previously the insights that you offered in in the podcast. Thank you very much for today and uh, all the very best. All right. And thank you both for having me. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks.